Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. Well, it is good to see you today. Let me, before I launch into the word, just a little explanation, because I was a little disconnected this last week, <clears throat> and I know some were trying to get hold of me for one thing and another, and, and I wasn't really, I was incommunicado, as they say. Uh, but I was back in Orlando, Florida. Most of you know, some of you know, I'm very involved in the good work that goes on every day at the Bakersfield Pregnancy Center, uh, which is a, an untapped jewel in our, in our city. Every day, just dozens and dozens of young ladies that are in a crisis situation will go there and find all kinds of love and help and medical help and ultrasound and all kind of thing. And, and uh, every month, a number of, of young lives, the most innocent of lives, baby lives, unborn lives are saved. And the number just keeps getting bigger every month. And so it's hundreds and hundreds a year. So I'm very involved with that. So they asked me to go back to Orlando. There was a big conference for an umbrella organization over all the good pregnancy centers called CareNet. And it was just a, it was a great time, a gathering of 13 or 1400 of people that are involved in that important work. And, and these are not the people that display the ugly pictures, the graphic pictures. These are not activists. These are people that are just doing the good, solid shepherd work of helping people when they hurt. And so um, it was just a great atmosphere. People from all kinds of churches, all kinds of backgrounds and just all kind of encouragement. And one of the takeaways I, I brought home with me as I thought flying out, flying back the other night, was uh, this thing is changing. The whole issue of abortion is changing in our nation because I think there's so much healing that's gone on because places like the Pregnancy Center not only help a young lady, a young family that's in a crisis situation, make a difficult decision and make a good decision. But they also help people that have maybe made the wrong decision and later on they regret it. So there's just so much healing that's been going on. For 30 plus years, people have been protesting abortion and some of them using tactics that I don't really care for. And nothing's changed. The law is still there. It's still legal. Um, the, the people that are proponents of it say their goal is to make it rare safe and, and legal, and the only one they've actually done is make it legal. It's not rare and it's not safe, but the numbers are drastically reducing, and the numbers of abortion clinics where that procedure is performed, they're closing all the time. They're just closing, and they're closing for lack of business. So it seems that what Lots of well-meaning people maybe using some not-so-good tactics and trying to change laws and change legislation. It's not working. That the Holy Spirit is quietly working. And the thing is beginning to dry up. And so we thank God for that. Thank God for that. So that's why you, if you wanted to reach me this last week and called here, I, I didn't respond. Uh, yesterday was the memorial service for Pastor Robert Johnson, and some of you were there. And it was a good, it was a good service. It was a good time to remember. Um, 
and, and a good blessing for his family. So continue to pray. Several of you have asked today even, uh, what is Jean going to do? And I, I had a nice talk with her afterward, and uh, I conveyed your love to her. But uh, I told her, I said, Jean, there's no rule book for this. You know, so don't let anybody try and tell you what to do. You do what seems right today, and, and then tomorrow you do what seems right tomorrow. So she's not sure. She just says the worst part is going into an empty house. And some of you know what that's like. So you continue to pray for her. She's not sure where she's going to stay, here or, or where. So just, just continue to pray for her and the family. If I were going to title uh, the next few minutes, it would be this title. If you care to write it down, if you're a note taker, the title to this would be, Do You Know What I Have Done To You? Do you know what I have done to you? That is one of those 295 questions that Jesus asked. And when Jesus asks questions, he never asks questions because he can't get the information any other way. He never asks questions because he doesn't know. Uh, he never asks questions to use them as an icebreaker, you know, a mixer. He asks questions because he will use a question like the question, do you know what I have done to you? He uses questions in our lives like a skilled surgeon would use the sharpest of scalpels. He uses it to peel back the layers so that we can be healed. So there's some healing in this question today. Do you know what I have done to you? If you care to turn in your Bible, it's John 13. And it's an interesting unfolding of events here. And there are some strange detours. As you're opening your Bible, you're seeing that perhaps your chapter heading says something about the Lord's Supper. This is the Last Supper. This is the last night before He's crucified. This is the end of three years of intense involvement in people's lives. And, and here it is. It's the culmination of it all. It's the last night. It's the Last Supper, and two strange detours take place at this Last Supper. This is a Passover meal. It's a Jewish feast, and he is there to celebrate it with his friends. But at the end of this traditional Jewish Passover, two strange detours. One of them is he starts a thing. We celebrated it last week in this very room called the Lord's Supper communion. He will institute it that night after supper, after they've all eaten. And maybe the clatter of dinner dishes being collected is all over now. And they're just sitting back having enjoyed the meal. Detour number one, Jesus will take some bread. He will bless it. He will pray over it after they've eaten. You pray before you eat, then you eat. They've done all that, but he will take some bread. He will bless it, break it, and give it to them and say, take and eat this. This is my body that's broken for you. And he'll do the same with the cup. So he starts this thing called the Lord's Supper after supper. But another thing happens, and it may this detour may have happened at the end I have a feeling it may have happened somewhere during the supper. It's the washing of the disciples' feet, and it happened this way. It says that um, 
Jesus, knowing that he was headed back to the Father and that he had pleased the Father with all of his life, got up from the supper, I think sometime during the supper, and he laid aside his garments, his robes, so that he could be free to move. And now he's just down maybe to his undershirt. And he takes a towel and wraps it around him. And he goes over to the water stand and he gets a basin and he fills it with water. And he gets another towel and maybe he gets some soap, some kind of detergent that was on hand. And he goes to each of his men and he removes their filth-encrusted sandals. Filth-encrusted because no sewers in that day. When you walked the sidewalks, you were walking the sewer. And all the filth of the day collected on their feet, and they had come into this dinner time, and nobody had washed their feet. And so Jesus takes off their sandal, and he begins to remove the dirt and the filth and the garbage. And he begins as he cleans their feet to dry them off, and he moves down the line. I, I think he probably gets to Simon Peter last, the way the story is told. And he gets to Simon Peter, and Simon Peter, having watched him wash all of the other's feet, even Judas's feet, Jesus comes to Simon Peter, and Simon Peter stops him and says, no, you are not going to wash my feet, Lord. Jesus says to him, you don't understand what I'm doing. You don't have the capacity to understand why I have to wash your feet right now. You don't know what this means right now, but there will come a time later when you will understand. How many have had the experience of you go through something, you live through something, you experience something, and you're not able to appreciate it at the moment? It's only with the passage of time, maybe years, that you go, oh, that's what But still, Simon Peter insists, he says, never will you wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. Pretty rough. And just that quickly, Simon Peter says, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus says, no, you don't need that. Just let me wash your feet for now. And after he finished, including Judas, he washed his own hands and he put his clothes back on and he sat back down. And then he says it. He says, do you understand? Do you know what I have done to you? Good question. Good question. This this washing of their feet He doesn't go out with a big miracle. He's done big miracles, but he doesn't go out on this night with a big miracle. This is not a miracle here, unless you consider it a miracle of humility. It says he humbled himself and washed their feet. And this humbling, this self-humbling, comes at an odd time, really, because just a short time before, he had been in another place when a lady by the name of Mary, who had a background, came in, 
and she anointed his feet with very expensive oil, and she anointed his feet with a very expensive perfume, and his head as well. She bathed him in it, and then instead of using a towel or a rag, she wiped his feet off, the excess incense off with her hair. She had just honored him that way, an incredible honor that Mary had paid to Jesus had just happened. And a few days before that, he had been welcomed into the city of Jerusalem like no conquering hero had ever been welcomed. He'd come in and the people had waved branches and cried out, Hosanna, which means God save. Nobody had ever been welcomed into the city like that. He is the son of God is what the people were saying. Even the little kids were running around singing it and babbling it. He'd taken the city by storm. That had never happened before. What an honor had been given him. But now, in the darkness of that room, he balances all of that out, all of that honor, as he bows before stinking feet to remedy a social embarrassment. You see, what had happened was a huge mistake. He'd sent his men to set this feast up, the Passover meal. They'd gotten a rented room. They had gotten all the furnishings in there. They had, had gotten all of the right foods, and I won't go into it, but it was a very laid out and methodical way that you ate the Passover. It wasn't just a matter of a couple hamburgers will do. It was all specially prepared. And they had handled all the details beautifully. His advance men had performed well. But they had forgotten to arrange for the washing of the feet. You've got to have feet washed when you eat with a bunch of guys. Now, in spite of the famous da Vinci painting where they're all seated nicely at a table in straight-back chairs... And they're all on the same side of the table, by the way. I've always wondered if somebody told them, we're taking a picture here, guys. And they... It wasn't like that. If you've ever been to a nice Japanese restaurant, it was more like that. You sit at a table that's down low. You're not on a chair. You're on a cushion. And your feet are stretched out lengthwise around the table. And you're laying back on your elbow. And that's the way you eat which means that somebody's feet are in your face. And in this case, they forgot to hire the foot washer. And so the stench was bad. They'd been walking in the sewer. In those days, they didn't have open sewers. They didn't have drains. You, just, you took the refuse from the night. And that included whatever the kids dropped. It included garbage. It included old dishwater and wash water. It included the potty, and you just threw it out in the street in front of your place, and you hoped that by the time all the traffic died down that night that that got kicked in front of your neighbor's place. That's the way it worked. And you walked in that, and that's what's in that room with 13 sets of stinking feet. And they didn't have a foot washer. And you can imagine in that culture that to touch those kind of feet and those kind of conditions 
was about the lowest kind of work you could do. You couldn't pay somebody to do that work. And by law, you could not even compel a slave to do it. It was that nasty. So you know what they did? They would get somebody that didn't know any better. They would most often hire a handicapped kid. They would hire a kid with Down syndrome. They would hire a kid who didn't know any better. And they would make him wash feet. So the Savior of the world, the creator of the universe, at some point in that supper when the smell got unbearable, said somebody's got to do something. And he got up and took off his jacket and knelt down and did the work of a handicapped child. And he says to them, do you understand what I just did for you? That's his question. Peter's the very last one, it seems. Judas permitted Jesus to wash his feet. Judas has already made the deal to sell Jesus down the river. He got the money in his pocket. And it says in the second verse, during the supper, supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, and Jesus knew it, still washes his feet, and Judas allows Jesus to wash his feet without protest. The betrayer, his feet are washed. Judas permitted Jesus, and I've got a feeling he may even took pleasure in the fact that Jesus humbled himself before him. But Simon Peter protested. He said, you won't wash my feet. I'm not going to let you wash my feet. You can wash all those other fellows' feet, but I'm better than that. I'm not going to let you do that. And what Jesus says to him when he goes through that back and forth, if you don't let me wash your feet then you have no part of me. That is a severe caution about disobedience to the Savior. That's what I think. If you look at it, Jesus, the language that Jesus uses here, he's not budging. If you don't let me wash your feet, Simon, we don't have anything to do with each other. You have no part in me. You have no part. You have no interest in me, really. Because interest in Jesus Christ is shown if we willingly do what he says, if we willingly refuse to do what he says, if we are in rebellion to do what he says, even if we don't understand what he says, even if what he says seems to be a minor thing like washing feet. No, I'll pass. No, you won't pass. And so it's a severe warning about disobedience, isn't it? even about things I don't understand. He tells him, you don't understand, Simon Peter, not yet, not tomorrow, not the next day, not next month, not probably until your day comes when you've got to die for me. Will you understand what I've done for you? But that doesn't matter. I'm telling you to do it. Do it. Do it. So it's a warning about obedience, even if we don't see why, and even when it seems small. And then, and then Simon Peter, he says, well then, Lord, if that's the way it's going to be, then wash my head too. <laughs> wash me all over. <laughs> How quickly he changed. That's good, right? He got it. And he, he immediately was sorry for his disobedience, and he says, then, then everything, if that's the way it's going to be. 
not my feet only. Jesus says, no, I only need to do the feet. The feet are all I've got to worry about right now. And that should be a tremendous comfort to us who belong to the Lord but make mistakes. Who love the Lord and try and live for Him, but sometimes we get down in the dirt, you know, and we fail. That should be a tremendous comfort to us because what he's saying is you need to take care to take care of the daily defilement that you come in contact with by walking in this world. These fellows had all already had their bath earlier in the day. But even if they had it right before dinner, they had to walk to dinner in the street and they got filth on their feet again. You see? And so they need to have those feet cleaned. There needs to be a daily cleansing every day before the Lord. Because every day when we walk in this world, we're every day defiled, aren't we? We pick up garbage. Things come in through the eye and the ear that defile us, that are bad, that are putrid, that are nasty. Sometimes it's in the form of what we see on a billboard or comes through our car radio. Sometimes we see something on television. Sometimes it's something we hear. Sometimes it's something we see in a magazine. or We get defiled just by walking in this world. In our case, in our day, it's not the danger necessarily of walking in filth in the gutter. We seem to have gotten a fairly good handle on that. But there's plenty of filth that comes through the media that defiles us every day. And though we belong to the Lord, we need to be cleansed every day. You see? We've had the great bath of salvation. That's already done a great cleansing. But we need to take care of that ugliness every day. Be obedient about that. Well, Jesus finishes all that. And he dresses and he settles back down on his cushion and he says, do you know what I've done to you? Do you know what Jesus has done to you? Do you realize what Jesus Christ has done to you? I'm not talking about your feet. I'm not talking about their feet. Do you realize what Jesus has done to you? That's his good question to us. And I think what he's implying by what he says afterward is, I think maybe not. I think perhaps not fully do you, do I understand what he's done for us. So he goes on to say, let me tell you what I've done. Pick it up in verse 14. And here's what he's got to say about what he's done. 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, here's what I've done. You also ought to wash one another's feet. So there's some learned behavior that we need to copy there, right? For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, it's one of Jesus' favorite 
phrases. Truly, truly. It means amen, amen. And amen just means yes. God puts a big yes on our life. God says yes about everything good. God wants to say yes to you about so many things. In fact, Paul will say it this way, that in Jesus Christ, Jesus is the yes of God. Jesus is a big yes in your life. And, and, and Jesus would say it often, yes, yes. Usually we put amen at the end of a prayer and say it once, but Jesus said it twice and put it at the beginning. Yes, yes, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak to all of you. I know the ones I've chosen. And the reason he's not speaking to all is because Judas is still sitting there. And some of this doesn't apply to him. Do not speak to all of you, but I know the ones I've chosen. Do you know what I've done to you? Maybe not. So he says, let me tell you. In verse 14, he says, I have taught you. Jesus Christ teaches you. He is your teacher. That's what the word rabbi means, teacher. He teaches you. He shows you. By example, by precept, through his word, in prayer, by his spirit, through other people, by experiences and circumstances, Jesus is all the time teaching you. He's like a tutor that never leaves your side. He's always pointing something out and showing you, teaching you. I've taught you. That's what I've done for you. We've been talking lately in our church, and you're going to hear a lot more about it in the future that Jesus doesn't want believers. He's not interested in believers. He's only interested in disciples. He said, go and make disciples. Don't go and make believers. Anybody can be a believer. Even devils believe. He's not interested in believers. He's interested in disciples. Disciples means followers. Disciples means learners. Disciples means apprentices. That's what Jesus is interested in. He's interested in learners and followers. Do you ever see people... I. I have a category of people that when I see them, I put them in this one category. When I see somebody that is a mess, and it's usually guys, and they're just imbeciles, they're idiots, they go out of their way to do dumb stuff all day long, every day. They get themselves in messes. Everybody's always got to fish them out. They're dumber than a box of rocks, and it's their own fault. And what I say about them is, you are the kind of guy that in high school, nobody could tell you anything. They didn't learn. They wouldn't allow themselves to be taught. That's a sad thing to be. We, we should all, as followers of Christ, be lifelong learners, shouldn't we? One of the ugliest things you'll ever see is somebody who calls themselves a Christian but they stop learning, and they stop growing. And all they can do is point backwards. They can't point forward, and Jesus isn't allowed to show them anything new. They've got all the answers already. Don't tell me anything. Thank you very much. Well, that's a repulsive kind of person. We should all be lifelong learners. 
There was another Mary who did it very best, did the very best at this. Jesus came to her house for dinner. He was friends with her and her other two siblings, a guy that he would later raise from the dead by the name of Lazarus and, and a sister she had named Martha. And to prepare all the house, Martha and Mary put everything together. But when Jesus got in the room, Mary stopped working and stopped preparing, and she sat at the feet of Jesus just to look at him and take it in. And Martha is scurrying around, getting everything ready, and finally Martha gets irritated with her sister, and in true passive-aggressive fashion, she speaks to Mary through Jesus and tries to get Jesus to beat up on Mary by saying, Lord, don't you care that I'm doing all this work? And she's sitting there on her tush doing nothing And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're worried about the wrong stuff. Mary has chosen the better thing. Just sit at the feet of Jesus and let him teach you. Let him show you. There might be somebody here that could correct me if I'm wrong, but I rarely ever tell anybody, don't smoke, stop your drinking, Change the way you treat your kids. That's not my function, really. My function is just to clearly show you who Jesus Christ is. And he does all the rest of that. See? He does all the rest of that. He, he will do all of that. As you get closer to him, he will teach you what you need to learn. So what has Jesus done? What have I done for you? Well, let me tell you, he says, I've taught you. So follow me. Life will change as you follow him because he's all the time showing and teaching. And that's his ongoing work in your life. So what has he done for you? He teaches you. But look in verse 15. What else? I have shown you. See what he says? For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. I don't know that he necessarily means that we should all go to one another's house and peel somebody's shoes off and take their stinky, sweaty socks off their wet feet and wash their feet. I don't, might be, you want to come to my house and do that for me? That's fine. I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> but I think he means we should be servants of one another. We, we should try to outdo each other in how humble we can be to one another. It should almost be a comedy act. No, you first. No, you first. <laughs> He's shown us by example. What's he done? He's given us an example. You know, you know, the best known case in Scripture where Jesus says, I want you to learn of me, it comes after he has said, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. There are so many Christians that are tied up in knots on the inside, and it's because they won't rest in Christ, and they won't take the yoke, and they won't be servants, and they got to be the boss, and it will wreck your life. But he says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. You know what he's talking about? No, you don't know what he's talking about because you never used the yoke before. I'm not talking about the kind in the egg. I'm talking about a bar of wood. 
that had a couple metal loops in it that the oxen would put their heads through. There was always a yoke big enough for two ox. There would be a young one and an experienced one. And they would cinch that thing up tight to the experienced one. But they would leave it loose on the one that didn't know the job as well, the trainee. You know why? Because that way as they walked along pulling whatever the load was, the burden fell on the experienced ox. But it was pretty much of a breeze for the new ox. Because it wasn't tight, the weight wasn't falling on him. And so that new ox was going along, it was not his job to bear the burden. That was the job of the experienced ox. It was the job of the new ox just to walk alongside the experienced one. Jesus invites us to take his yoke, his light yoke upon us. Because he's the one that's carrying the load. All in the world you've got to do is walk alongside. Let him carry the load. So if it's grief, it's it's concern about your future or your finances or your kids, let him carry the load. In fact, if you begin to feel the burden is very heavy, you're in the wrong spot. Switch places and let him carry the load. That's the context in which he says best, here's how you learn of me. So it's not a classroom situation, is it? It's just walking every day with Jesus, staying as close as you possibly can to him, however you've got to do that. Stay in the word, stay in prayer, stay in church, stay with good people. Do whatever it takes to walk as close to Jesus as you can, and he'll bear the burden And he'll show you how to do it. That's the way it works. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. So what has he done for us? He teaches us, but he also shows us by example. And you want to be as close to him as you possibly can be. But there's a third thing. Do you know what I've done for you? Look at what he says in verse 18. He says, I've chosen you. I've chosen you. The point at which somebody says, I think I want to have a relationship with Jesus. I think I'm willing to find out what it's like to invite him in and have him come in and start living his life inside of me, to begin to live his life, living in me, living his life as me. When we begin that process with a simple opening of the door of our heart saying, come in, it's at that point that an incredible process of adoption is set in place. He adopts us. We weren't part of his family. By the way we chose to behave, we were not in his family. But when we begin to turn our attention to him, he says, I'll take that one. He chooses us and he adopts us. I think sometimes that we in the church have been guilty for about 1,500 years of talking a lot about who is saved and who is not saved and how you get saved and are you really saved and can you get saved more than once and does it last forever? When we should not have been talking about that, we should have been talking about the wonders and the beauty and the, the comfort of adoption. Adoption. 
What has he done for you? He's chosen you. He's adopted you. On more than a few occasions, parents have brought their adoptive child who's been acting out and having some trouble and they've got natural children and they got this little knothead that they've adopted and he's acting bad. Here, fix him, cure him, kick him in the butt, do something with him. And I just tell them, your mom and dad got that kid. That kid was born. But you, they picked you. And I explained to them what every parent knows. When a child is born to you, what, what do you say at, at the preschool, Kimmy? You get what you get, and you don't throw a fit. You're stuck with your natural child. But the adopted child is chosen. That makes you special. He's adopted you. So what has he done for you? He's taught you. He's shown you an example. And he's chosen you. He's chosen you. You know, <clears throat> I said yesterday in the, in the service for Pastor Johnson that God is showing me three things. I guess I knew them. I've known them for a while. So it would be safer to say and more accurate to say that he's clarifying. I'm getting clarity on some things. And the other day I began to get real clarity on three things when I looked at a passage in Isaiah 53 talking about Jesus. It says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. It's talking about when he was humiliated and when he would be crucified. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. And then later on in that passage, or before that passage that talks about him, it talks about us. And now we are the sheep. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, and now he becomes the lamb of sacrifice. As I begin to think about that passage and some others, three things begin to kind of clarify. And I've thought about them a lot lately. One is, I try to be a fun guy. I enjoy life. I try to be funny. I'm pretty sure I'm funny. I'm pretty sure I'm funnier than most other people. And, and I enjoy life. But in spite of that, I am learning and it's coming into focus for me what a serious thing it is to be a human. This is serious business. And the other thing is that in light of eternity, which is very long, what a small, brief thing right now is. Right now is significant, it's important. The day that we're alive now, our time, our time on this earth is very important, it's significant. But in light of eternity and what God will do with time one day, what we're doing right now is so small and so brief. It's little. And I'm seeing that. And the third thing is what an intensely serious thing it is to face the judgment of God. The book of Hebrews says it this way, it's a terrible thing to fall in the hands of a living God. And I'm beginning to see what that 
might be like and how serious it is. How because of, a, of an intractable will, a, a, a dominant spirit in us that says, no, I want my way. And because of open rebellion, those things are so bad that only because of what God has done in Christ on the cross can we have any hope of turning around at all. Our problem is that serious that only Jesus on the cross can solve it. That only His outstretched hands, those same hands that have nail holes in them, that they're the only thing that can stop souls from falling further away from Him. I'm seeing that. Look at what He's done for you. Look at what He's done. Even when we come to Christ, we can be guilty of blindness and we, we can be guilty of forgetfulness. We forget what He's done for us. We can be guilty of laziness. And I don't want to worship Him today. I don't want to read the Word today. I don't want to gather with God's people today. That can set in. He can blind us. He said to a blind man one day, he walked up to a stone blind man that had been blind his whole life. And he asked the preposterous question, what do you want me to do for you? Well, I don't, I don't want you to dance for me. I don't want you to give me money. Obviously, I want you to give me my eyes. I want sight. What do you want me to do? And Jesus asked that question of you too. What do you want me to do? you. Maybe in your life, spending is out of control for you, and you're, you're living on credit. It's going to eat you alive, and you know it, but you can't stop. Maybe you have those times when you're alone in the house, or you're at work, and nobody's looking, and you click on the computer on a site that you shouldn't fill your brain with. Maybe you find it easy to waste time in front of the television. Afterward, you feel bad about it, but you do it the next day. Maybe you find yourself eating all the wrong stuff, and it'll wreck your health, and you know it, but you do it. Maybe you got an anger problem. Maybe you, maybe you yell too much. Maybe you lie about something. Maybe you're nursing an unforgiveness. You won't let it go. Maybe you've lusted lately. Maybe you're withholding from God. Maybe you're a selfish person. I got some good news for you. He can lift all of that off you. Not because God is a good guy does He lift that all off us, but because His Son died. What has Jesus done for you? You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.